0: get in touch with technology with tech stuff from howstuffworks.com Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host Jonathan Strickland and if things sound a little odd today, it's because I'm actually recording in my home studio. My home studio which is got a window facing out toward train tracks. It's not an ideal situation, but it's what I have to work with. And today we're going to look at the third part of the Nintendo story, the update to the two-part series that my former co-host Chris Paulette and I did way back in 2011. So back then, at that point, the Wii U had not yet been released. It had been announced, but not released. So we've got a lot to catch up on. And I'm going to pick up in 2011 and carry on up through present day. Also, I want to get this out of the way first thing. There will be a point in this podcast at the end of the episode in which I talk about stuff relating to Gamergate. Now, I want to say this. I can't be any more clear than this. Harassment tactics have no place in society. Period. Period. End of discussion. Now, I believe wholeheartedly that you are free to criticize the video game industry and video game journalism. That is perfectly fine. It is something that you should do if you truly believe in it, if you can do it in a way that isn't an attack on people. If you think that video game journalism is broken, or that the people who oppose Gamergate that they are wrong, that's also fine. That's something we can actually have a conversation about. What isn't fine is using bullying tactics, threats, insults, doxing, and other methods to terrify or silence someone. That is not fine, period. And if you think I'm wrong, unsubscribe to this podcast. I do not want you listening to my show, okay? I don't want people who think it's fine to make another human being's life miserable to be listening to tech stuff. So if if that's something that you think is cool or funny, unsubscribe. I don't want you listening to the show. Now, I say all that right now because when I get to the part in this episode that deals with Gamergate, I might not be in the right frame of mind to get this point across in a civil, reasonable way. I have no tolerance for people who disregard another human being's feelings and well-being. No one deserves to face that sort of abuse. And if you don't think it's a big deal, you are absolutely 100% wrong. Being constantly hounded and attacked is a huge deal. It's not cool. All right, so we got my podcaster warning out of the way. And keep in mind, again... You can disagree with what people say. I don't have a problem with that. I, I definitely do not have a problem if you feel that the points that Gamergate enthusiasts make are correct. I don't agree with it, but I don't have a problem with you believing that and arguing that. The problem I have is when you attack people. That's the problem I have. Uh Although, let's be fair. I also think that if you are really dead set against women being in the video game industry, you are a misogynist. That's just, that's the definition of misogyny, really, or a definition of misogyny. It's just, it's something you gotta own. I think it's bad, and I think it's wrong, but if that's who you're gonna be, own it, because you can't get around the fact that you are saying one thing, but you don't want to be labeled that thing. All right, let's actually talk about Nintendo now. We'll get back to GamerGate toward the end of the episode. So when we left off, it was Nintendo in 2011. Uh, Nintendo's annual report for 2011, which actually comes out in 2012. So Nintendo, their financial year, their fiscal year, uh, begins in April and ends March 31st. So the fiscal year is not the same as the calendar year. So when you talk about... The annual report of 2011, that actually comes out after March 31st, 2012. Well, in that annual report, the company announced it had sold 86.01 million units of the Wii console worldwide. An incredible number of uh, sales, and in fact, that number would continue to grow over time. The top-selling game for the Wii was Wii Sports, with 76.76 million copies, but Let's be fair. That game was sold with the Wii in most regions. In other words, this was the game you would get when you purchased your Wii, so automatically those sales should have been pretty high, seeing as how there were 86 million Wii units sold. Uh, Mario Kart Wii was the top selling Nintendo title that had an iconic character attached at that time. Uh, That one had sold 27 million copies. So significantly viewer, It actually shows you that one of the appealing aspects of the Wii was that it had this casual gamer appeal. And casual gamers don't necessarily care about iconic characters the way, quote-unquote, hardcore gamers do. And that's reflected when you see the most popular iconic character title was Mario Kart Wii, and it had sold 27 million copies, that tells you something. At any rate, uh, Wii Fit and Wii Fit Plus sold about 40 million units in total. So almost, you know, not quite, but but definitely more than Mario Kart Wii, but not twice as much. Um, still, pretty impressive. And by 2011, the Nintendo DS series had sold a total of 146.42 million units. Now, to be fair, that's across the entire family of DS devices. You probably are aware the 3DS didn't do nearly as well. So what was the top-selling DS game at that point? Super Mario World, with 26.88 million units sold. So again, it was a very popular family of handheld games, but that didn't necessarily mean that any one title was going to have this insanely... Uh, popular run. I mean, twenty six point eight eight million. That's a lot. That's a lot of of uh, Super Mario World games, but not uh not anywhere close to to what you would think based upon the number of units out there. Now, Nintendo had cut the sales price of the 3ds by the end of 2011, and actually, some people think that that was while it was probably a necessary move, it didn't do the company very many favors because it kind of contributed to some rough financial, uh, data. Moving into actual 2012, keeping in mind that report really came out spring of 2012, but in January 2012, I actually had the opportunity to play with the Wii U before it was publicly unveiled, uh, although it had been talked about at that point already, but I got a chance to actually get my hands on it and play it at CES. Now, Nintendo wasn't Exhibiting at CES, they had a suite in a nearby hotel and they invited certain members of the press to come in and play with it. And somehow they got my name. I have no idea how they got my name. I am thankful they got my name because I had the chance to play the Wii U before it came out. And I thought it was a really clever device. I didn't think it was one that I was going to buy. And the reason for that is I thought the most value from this device would be playing a game in a room with other people there, so that you're having a group experience playing a game. And I don't have people over at my house very frequently, so it was, wasn't was really a big appeal to me. I saw the appeal of it. It's the sort of thing that if I were at a friend's house at a party, and they had a Wii U, and they wanted to play one of these games, I would totally want to jump on board. And I really enjoyed the fact that if you had the gamepad, the, the controller that has the tablet-like interface included in it, you had a different experience than if you were one of the other players using the traditional Wii controls. And you could do lots of cool stuff. Like you could do a game of Pac-Man, where the person holding the gamepad is controlling Pac-Man, and the people with the other controllers are controlling the ghosts. And you have two different views. You might have a top-down view for one group, and you might have a three-dimensional point of view view for the other person. It was a really cool way to present video games in a new format, a new user interface. So I was, I was thinking, well, this is interesting. I don't know if it's enough, different enough from the Wii to convince people who have a Wii to upgrade to a Wii U. Because otherwise it looked a lot like the Wii console. And so, I wasn't sure that it was enough to convince people to buy a new console, uh, or if it would just convince people who are just getting into the market to buy a Wii U instead of a Wii. In February 2012, Nintendo would purchase a company called MobiClip. Now, if you've played a lot of Game Boy Advance games or DS games, you've probably seen the Mobi Clip logo pop up prior to 2012. MobiClip was a company that specialized in video compression codecs. Uh, so essentially, they were finding ways to compress video so that you can use it in, uh, in in limited devices, devices that don't have massive amounts of memory or graphics processing. So this acquired company became a new division at Nintendo called the Nintendo European Research and Development Division. MobiClip had done some work for Nintendo for lots of these handheld gaming systems, and a job posting actually made it clear that Nintendo was thinking of using MobiClip not just to continue working in the handheld realm, but also to develop technologies that would be used in consoles, uh, presumably living room consoles, not handheld consoles. So that was kind of interesting. It was a it was a hint that there was another Nintendo console in the works. Uh, so, how did Nintendo do overall in 2011? Not great. Uh, the company experienced an earning loss of $532 million. And it had a 36.2% drop in net sales revenue. This was the first time Nintendo had ever suffered an annual earnings loss. Quarter by quarter was different. Sometimes a quarter might be up or down, but... Overall, Nintendo had always come out on the positive side at the end of the year. This was the first time that didn't happen, that Nintendo had lost $532 million as a result of the drop in sales and the costs that Nintendo had incurred in that year. Sadly, it would not be the last time this would happen to Nintendo. Now, income from net sales of Nintendo products had actually been on the decline since 2008. So it wasn't like this was a big surprise, but it definitely wasn't welcome news. Uh, at 2012's E3, Nintendo spent a really uh, a good amount of time and energy talking about the Wii U. So this was them trying to say that the Wii U was going to be the next big thing, you know. Since the Wii, they were trying to position it as the future of the company and a true innovation in gaming. But the company ran into some trouble with this. A lot of critics were saying that the E3 presence wasn't a very strong one, and that was partially due to a pre-E3 event in which the president, Iwata, unveiled the Wii U and a lot of the games involved. So, in other words, people felt that this pre-E3 event kind of stole the thunder from Nintendo, and thus it didn't make as strong a showing at E3. In fact, IGN went so far as to say that Nintendo lost E3, and that going into the event, the company could have won E3. Now, lost and winning or losing E3, uh, that largely is just what we say after the fact, like, which company came out looking the strongest after E3? And IGN's argument was that Nintendo could have come out looking the strongest, largely because both Microsoft and Sony were still in the old PS3, Xbox One, or Xbox 360, rather, days, and that neither of them had shown a lot of innovation in the space, so it was Nintendo's game to lose, and sadly, according to IGN anyway, they did lose it. Now, late in 2012, Nintendo announced that the Wii U, uh, its update to the Wii console, would hit store shelves in the United States on November 18th. And in the United States, there would be two versions that would be available. One was the basic version, which was an 8GB uh, uh, memory version with gamepad, HDMI cable, Wii U sensor bar, AC adapter, uh, for a price of about $299. Then there was more of a, a deluxe package, which came with a unit that had 32 gigabytes of memory, um, and all the stuff that the basic setup had, plus a gamepad charging cradle... Uh, a stand for the gamepad, a stand for the console, and a copy of Nintendo Land, which was sort of a mini-game collection, uh, kind of similar to what you might find in something like Mario Party. And this version would be priced at $349. Interestingly, it was launching in the United States first. It actually launched a little bit later in Europe, and even later still in Japan, now, the launch sales figures were not what Nintendo was hoping for. There was about 3 million units sold by the end of 2012. So, to be fair, they had only been on sale for about a month and a half, but it was the holiday season. So you expect a pretty strong adoption rate around the holidays, but Nintendo just didn't see that. Part of that was that sometimes Wii U's were hard to find. It was similar to the old Wii problem, where you would go to a store and they wouldn't have a unit in for, for weeks, or they would get one or two in and they would be sold almost immediately. Uh, Nintendo representatives later said that they thought the slow sales were largely due to a lack of compelling games for the system at launch. Uh, I, can, I can buy that. I think that if your video game system does not have enough compelling titles when it goes to launch, it's got an uphill battle ahead of it. Because the people who adopt it early will get disenchanted with titles that don't really take advantage of the system, and then the word of mouth spreads that it's not a very good system. And it may be a great system. It may just be that the games that best take advantage of it are a year or two down the road. Um, It's a tough thing to do. You really want to have a strong launch library when you go out with a new console. And that was the problem. Wii U just didn't have that. Now, in 2013, the company was starting off the year in a pretty rough place. So it operated at a loss for the second year in a row. Over the fiscal year of 2012, the company lost $366 million. And remember, the previous year, it had lost $532 million. Here's the other thing you have to keep in mind. The 2011 fiscal year did not include the launch of a brand new console. 2012 did include the launch of a brand new console. And even with the new product, the company still lost $366 million, which to me tells me that it would have lost even more money if the Wii U had not come out at all. Maybe. I mean, maybe that's wrong, because maybe the cost of developing, marketing, and shipping the Wii U was part of that huge loss. And maybe if they didn't do the Wii U, those costs, since they never would have been incurred by Nintendo, maybe it means that they would have lost less money. I'm not, I'm not good at finance, y'all. Anyway, Nintendo had projected it would sell 5 million Wii U's by the end of fiscal year 2012, it had later adjusted that prediction down to four million Wii U's, but in fact they only sold 3.45 million. So they were aiming for five, said mm, maybe that was too ambitious. Let's aim for four and still only hit 3.45 million. The company also experienced weak sales with the 3DS, which was performing lower than expected. So things were looking pretty bleak across the board. At the E3 that year, at 2013's E3, Nintendo actually said, you know what, we're not going to hold a press conference at E3, the way we've done in years past. Typically, when E3 rolls around, the big, big companies like Microsoft and Sony, and usually Nintendo, each hold their own press events, typically the day before or two days before the show floor opens. And then you also get lots of the bigger name uh, production companies like EA or Bethesda doing their own events. Uh, this was the first time Nintendo said, you know what, we're going to step out. We're not going to do a full press event. Instead, they held a small Nintendo Direct event before E3 started. Now, Nintendo Direct events are things that happen fairly regularly. Uh, back when Awata uh, uh, was the president, he would do these personally. And, uh, so it was kind of a way of telling people what Nintendo was up to regularly throughout the year. But this direct event started before E3. Uh, but Nintendo did go to E3. They had exhibition space on the floor, so they were present. They just didn't hold a press event. So you could go to E3 if you were part of the industry. E3 is currently an industry-only event. So you could go to E3 and you could go to the Nintendo section and see what they had to display, but they didn't have a big press event unfolding all of that at E3. One of the things they showed off at this Nintendo Direct event uh, was the Wii Party U, which allowed you to use the Wii U gamepad for tabletop-style games. Uh, They also showed off other games at E3. Not all of these would be uh, aimed for a 2013 release. So they showed off Super Smash Bros., Super Luigi U., Yoshi's New Island, uh The Legend of Zelda Windwalker HD, uh the Pokemon's games X and Y, and yes, I know I'm saying it wrong, and yes, I know it's not funny. Moving on. Also, they showed off Mario Kart 8. Uh, in August 2013, Nintendo announced that they had a new handheld console they were going to release, the 2DS. So they were working backwards. The 3DS had been out for a couple of years. Now they're going 2DS. So the 2DS is essentially a dumbed down 3DS. It has largely the same hardware, except it doesn't have the, uh, the 3D screen. It has the two screens, and it's also in a slate form factor. In other words, it's a solid, almost tablet-like form factor. It's just a tablet that happens to have two screens uh, separated by by a, a bezel, like a case. Uh, it doesn't close. It's not a clamshell design like the other DS systems were. It's It's solid. Uh, some people liked that, and some people hated it. I was indifferent because I have not held, had a handheld system in so long, apart from my phone. My phone is my handheld system. Uh, actually, that's a huge issue for Nintendo. So in the fall of 2013, Nintendo purchased a 28% interest in another company called PUX Corporation. Now, PUX Corporation started off as a division inside Panasonic, but then Panasonic spun it off as its own company, and what it does is work in voice and face recognition software as well as audio and video processing. So again, Nintendo's trying to beef up its ability to deal with voice and face recognition. It tells you a little bit about the sort of stuff the company was thinking about developing into the future. So now we're up to 2014. Guess what? Didn't start off very well at all. Uh Reports of falling profits prompted Nintendo CEO Iwata to announce he would take a 50% cut in his salary. He said, you know, if if the company is doing this poorly, I cannot be rewarded for it. So I will take a half cut in my salary. I will make half as much this for the next six months or five months uh and other executives received cuts in their salaries between 20 to 30%. Awad he saved the biggest cut for his own salary. And he said that the reduction would last for 5 months and then the company would revisit the issue in June of 2014. And this was a pretty interesting move. Uh I like the move. I like I like executives taking ownership for a company's performance not doing well and saying look if if we are rewarding ourselves at full salary, whether we're doing well or not, where's the incentive to do well? Now you've created an incentive to do well because you're not making nearly as much money. From April 2013 to December, uh, the the company had only sold 2.4 million Wii U units uh, now the company had adjusted projected sales from April 2013 to March 2014. Remember, that's, that's a fiscal year for Nintendo. April through March. They wanted to sell 2.8 million units. Actually, that's, that's how many they sold. 2.8 million units from April 2013 to March 2014. But that's not what they were hoping for originally. They were aiming to sell 9 million units. So their goal was 9 million and they hit 2.8 million. They didn't even get 33% of the way there. That is dreadful, dreadful performance. And the annual report was pretty grim. It was the third straight year of losses for Nintendo. This time the damage came to $457 million in losses. So still not as bad as 2011. That was 532. 2012 was uh 366 something like that and then 2013 was 457 million yikes now at the 2014 E3 Nintendo again decided not to have a full press conference and this was a little confusing because when they decided to to skip the press conference in 2013 Nintendo representative said this is a one time thing we're skipping this year but that doesn't mean we're done with E3 we're just skipping this year We'll be back again. Don't worry. 2014, they skip it again for the press event. Uh, so instead, Nintendo held a video presentation called The Digital Event. It was actually really cute. I don't know if you've ever watched it, but it is worth watching because it's it's very silly and Nintendo pokes fun at itself in a way that is refreshing. Uh, however, it does drag. It's It's about... I think 45 minutes long, and it could have been half an hour easy, Uh, maybe less, because there's some stuff that drags on. I I literally started skipping ahead at some points. Anyway, at E3, during this digital event, the company announced that Mii characters, that's M-I-I, the little characters you could create in Nintendo Wii, that they would start to show up in Smash Brothers games for the 3DS and for Wii U. So for the first time, you could actually create your own Smash Brothers character to fight against the iconic characters of Nintendo like uh, Mario and Link and Zelda and Samus and those sort of characters. Or Samus. I honestly don't know how to say her name. I apologize. Nintendo also introduced at that digital event the Amiibo. Now, Amiibos are a brilliant idea. Uh, It's not the first time anyone's come up with this idea. Uh, There's uh, Disney's characters have this, and then there's the Skylander characters that have this. These are figurines, physical figurines you can go out and buy, and they can interact with a Wii U gamepad. You set the figurine on top of the gamepad, and there's a chip inside the figurine that then communicates wirelessly to your gamepad and it allows you to import certain characters into into compatible games. Uh It also, the chip inside the Wii U... uh Uh, amiibo also can record information so you can beef up a character over time and use it to play against other people for example it's a really interesting idea and of course by creating a new product a new physical product for people to buy it gave a new line of revenue for nintendo so it was a really uh, interesting way to try and go about this this decline in sales They also showed off several games, including Yoshi's Woolly World, uh, Captain Toad Treasure Tracker, a few of the Pokemon's games, Uh, Mario Maker was shown off for the first time. Really, it was just a, a tease that was shown at this digital event, and a tease for the new Legend of Zelda game, which, as of this recording, still hasn't come out yet. It was supposed to come out in 2015, but then it hit a delay, and so we're still waiting for this new Legend of Zelda game to come out. A collection of good games started to show up on the Wii U, and that actually gave a little bit of a boost to Wii U sales. Uh, and 3DS titles started to do well as, as at the same time, but it wasn't like the figures were spectacular. They were just better than they had been. So it wasn't a, a grand slam home run, but it was a move in the right direction. Now, starting in 2015, when Amiibos actually began to hit store shelves, And by hit, I mean they would gently land on a store shelf for a split second before someone bought them. This became a huge problem for Nintendo. A PR nightmare, really. Because the Amiibo figures had relatively small production runs, meaning there weren't a whole lot of them made. And that meant that only a few would end up going to any given store in a region. So if you have lots of different stores in your area, one of them might get a few of a certain generation of Amiibo. And once they're gone, they're gone. Uh, Nintendo's idea was that they were going to produce small runs of figurines. And when you when all of those were gone, instead of replacing them with new versions of the figurine, they would come out with all new characters, all new figurines that had brand new ones that had nothing to do with the old ones. Because they had so many characters, uh, dozens of characters that they could go through. And so the idea was that they were going to cater to a certain group of fans. Those fans would buy the figurines, and then new figurines would come out, and they'd buy those. But Nintendo would not go back and make tons and tons and tons of the older figurines because they didn't anticipate demand being as high as it was, and that was a huge mistake because demand was through the roof. People were camping out to buy Amiibos, and you couldn't necessarily get them online either. As soon as they would be show up in stock online, people would buy them and they'd be gone again. And it became very frustrating for a lot of collectors and a lot of gamers who, who legitimately wanted these Amiibo f- to play with in, in their games. In fact, some of them, they weren't collectors. They had no interest... In buying all the different amiibos, they had a specific one they wanted, and then it would get it would get purchased. It would be unavailable, and people were having trouble finding them. It ended up creating a secondary market. So, these figurines, which uh, for retail price were at twelve dollars and ninety nine cents, were sometimes being sold for more than a hundred dollars on various uh, auction sites because you couldn't find them anywhere else, and it was creating a real sense of frustration among the fans of Nintendo. And the company started to address this by increasing the production runs uh, so that they were producing more units per generation. But as far as I know, there's been no announcement of going back and producing new versions of the older Amiibo figures. So those are still scarce. And it's not, it wasn't like it was a manufactured scarcity on purpose. Nintendo wasn't necessarily setting out to create a scarce resource because Nintendo does not benefit from that. Nintendo is selling them at the, at the standard price. It's resellers that are marking the price up. Nintendo does not benefit from the marked up price. And that's a real issue, uh, for, the company and for its fans, because it, it gives the company a black eye. It says, uh, yeah, you know, we messed up, but deal with it. And the fans say, no, that's not cool. So Amiibos have been both a blessing and a curse. Now, in the spring of 2015, Nintendo announced it would bring some of its games to mobile platforms, which is something it had never, ever done before. In fact, Nintendo representatives before that point had been adamant that there was no interest or desire to end up going over to the uh, uh, mobile side, that they would never really do that. They would instead focus on their own platforms. But 2015 showed a change of heart, and the company also announced that a new console codenamed NX was in development. So this was the company acknowledging that there is another console on the way. This was back in 2015, uh, but there weren't that many details. Other than the company claiming that this was a brand new direction, it was not just a new iteration of the Wii or the Wii U. It was a, a new model for console gaming for Nintendo. We don't necessarily understand what that means yet. It might mean that it's a hybrid, that it's something that bridges both the living room experience and the mobile experience. But we don't know for sure. And we won't know for a while, probably. Maybe not too long, as of the recording of this podcast. But nothing official has been announced. Uh, So news also broke that Nintendo was partnering with Universal to create theme park attractions. And I know that got a lot of people excited. The idea of visiting a theme park that has Nintendo-style rides or experiences, characters, that kind of thing. It could be a huge hit. And i got to admit, I would love to see some really cool interactive theme park attractions that are based off Nintendo properties. I, I know that there have been people who have recreated things like Mario levels using bungee cords and trampolines and that kind of stuff so that you can kind of run a course that is inspired by a level in Super Mario Brothers. I would love to see something like that done with a universal theme park budget. That would be amazing. Um, so hopefully that is something we will see in the future. Now, Nintendo's E3 in 2015 showed off some of the games that had been announced the year before, so they started to to really show off things like Mario Maker and Yoshi's Woolly World, but those are games that we got a peek at in 2014. Nintendo also announced a partnership with Skylanders, which would allow certain Nintendo amiibo to enter the Skylanders world, but in general a lot of people felt that that E3 was a pretty quiet one for Nintendo. They didn't really come out and announce anything groundbreaking or truly surprising at that E3. Now in July, that's when we get to the really sad part of this story. Uh, The gaming world was shocked when Nintendo announced that Nintendo President Satoru Iwata had died from bile duct cancer. He was just 55 years old. He had previously undergone treatments for his cancer, uh, including a surgery in 2014. And this death was pretty sudden. I, I I get the sense that people did not know that this was coming. It was a very kind of unexpected thing to happen. Uh, Gen- Genyo uh, Takeda and Shigeru Miyamoto took over the company as interim replacements. They were leading the company together. And the industry as a whole grieved over Iwata's death. And lots of sympathetic messages came in from companies like Microsoft and EA. A lot of luminaries in the gaming industry spoke highly of Iwata and mourned his loss uh, and our loss with his passing. It was a very heavy time. And... Keep in mind, this is also happening while Nintendo is struggling. They're having issues because the Wii U just was not selling very well compared to uh, earlier uh, consoles. Certainly not as well as the Wii. The Wii sold about 100 million units overall. The Wii U was not doing that well. And uh, that made shareholders antsy. And then to see the, the president pass away, it was really... A rough moment. Now in September 2015, Nintendo named uh, Tatsumi Kimishima as the new president, with uh, Takeda t- receiving a title called uh, Technology Fellow, and Miyamoto got a title called Creative Fellow. Kimishima was the former president of Nintendo North America, and even before that, he was the president of the Pokemans division. Uh, so he had been with Nintendo for more than a decade, and uh, now was assuming a, the, the leadership role of the overall company. He had even been the managing director of Nintendo before becoming the president. Uh, Nintendo also changed up its organizational structure at that point, consolidating several game development teams and, and shifting things around, uh, really in an effort to redefine its corporate structure and its strategy. And finally, now we're getting to the story I alluded to at the beginning of this episode, uh, pretty soon. Uh, first, I guess I should say, before I get into that, Nintendo, there's a lot of spectac- speculation that Nintendo's gonna show off the NX console at E3 this year, in 2016, with a goal of potentially having it on the market by holiday 2016. A lot of analysts say that they're, they're betting this is going to happen, that Nintendo feels it is necessary for it to happen in order to turn things around. I'm sure there are a lot of shareholders who feel the same way. Um I don't know if that's realistic. I don't know if the NX is going to be unveiled and launched this year. It's possible that we'll get a tease and a launch next year. Um But it's also possible that Nintendo has its ducks in a row and it's ready to move on this because... It would be a way of reinvigorating the company if they've made the right choices with their new hardware. That's gonna That remains to be seen. We'll just have to keep our eyes out. And uh, that comes up E3 happens in June, and it is currently April as I record this, so we'll just have to watch and find out what happens. Now let's get to the story I talked about at the beginning of the episode, the Gamergate related episode, uh, or related uh, story. Uh, this is a complicated story, and there are a lot of things I need to kind of explain, uh, in order to, to really give you guys the, the context of what's happening. So, there was, uh, an, a Nintendo employee named Allison Rapp, and Allison was the, was a marketing employee. She worked in a marketing division for Nintendo. So her job was to uh to do marketing for Nintendo products. She was also the target of a massive harassment campaign that was absolutely insane. It made no sense. It was just mean-spirited, vicious and vile. And here's what happened. So Nintendo had made a decision to tone down the content of certain Japanese games when being adapted for the Western market. And that's a very general thing to say. So what's actually happening? Well, most of the content had to do with depictions of sexuality or sexual characteristics, particularly in young female characters. So the Japanese versions were a little more explicit and sexualized, And some representatives at Nintendo apparently felt that this was not a good approach for Western video game audiences, and so the move was made to tone that down. Um, Now, some people who associate themselves with the Gamergate movement felt this was another example of video games being ruined by people. They're ruining the video games. That's not the way the video game was meant to be played. Uh, They identified... Rap Allison Rapp, as a target for their frustration, largely because Allison Rapp worked for Nintendo and she had posted about feminism and feminist issues on Twitter in the past. So they leapt to the conclusion that somehow Allison Rapp, one, was responsible for toning down these games, and two didn't share their opinion that this was a bad thing, and so therefore she should be targeted and harangued and harassed and bullied and threatened. And that's exactly what started. Now, first things first. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, this is never a justified course of action. It is wrong to harass people in this way. It is wrong both... Ethically and legally, it is against the law to harass people in this way. Don't do that. You are a bad person if you do that. Don't be a bad person. Be a good person. Even if you disagree with someone, be a good person. That doesn't mean just let the thing happen. You can voice your opinion. Just do it in a way that's not an attack on another human being. Being for goodness sakes. So that's the first thing. It's wrong on the face of it. But the second thing is that rap had nothing to do with the localization of products for Nintendo. In other words, she was not responsible. She had no input on changing the content of a game from the Japanese version to the American version. Nothing. Not even input into that area. So, Holding her responsible for something that she did not do is crazy. Third, Rap's own history, her own writing, her Twitter history, suggests she felt pretty much the same way as a lot of the Gamergate folks felt. That she did not see the need to alter games. That she didn't see the, the sexualization necessarily as wrong. Uh, not to put words into her mouth, but a lot of her writing suggests at least that you, taking the Japanese culture for what it is, is what you should do. You should not apply the ethics of one culture to the Japanese culture. That was kind of her perspective. So she wasn't even advocating the changes that people attacked her for. So she wasn't responsible for it. She didn't advocate for it. She just happened to be female, and she happened to have voiced her opinion on some feminist issues, and that was enough for her to be targeted and bullied and harassed. So they actually, at that point, once it was even clear that Allison Rapp had nothing to do with the problem... The attackers didn't back off. They doubled down. They found an essay that Allison Rapp had written in college, which was not hard to do. It was linked on her LinkedIn profile. And in that essay, Rapp essentially argued that Japanese cultural norms are different from Western cultural norms, and it's wrong to apply the moral perspective of one culture to another culture. And she was specifically talking about the sexualization of teenagers, which is a pretty taboo topic here in Western culture. Especially the younger teenagers. It's a very taboo subject. And Alison Rapp has been pretty vocal about supporting the Japanese culture side to a point where some people are actually offended by it. And her attackers began to use that against her. They began to send messages to Nintendo executives saying that Alison Rapp was supporting uh, pedophiles, that she was in favor of this from happening, that she thought that uh things, you know, laws regarding pedophilia should be removed. And that was putting words into Allison Rapp's mouth. But they were essentially using her own writing against her in this case. Uh, which is weird already. Not that I I you know it is weird because the original argument the attackers made was that they did not want changes made to the video games they wanted to play. They wanted to have the access to the content that Nintendo representatives had identified as being inappropriate for Western audiences. And now they're using an an argument that, that same argument the Nintendo representatives used in an effort to get Allison Rapp fired. So in other words, they're using their own, the thing that they hate, as an attack against the person that they've identified as the appropriate target. Keeping in mind, she had nothing to do with any of this. Now, here's the next step. Nintendo fired Allison Rapp. This adds another complication to the story. Now, the company claims that the reason that they fired her had nothing to do with the harassment she had been enduring and the the threats that had been leveled at her and the PR problem that this was creating. They said, no, we're aware of that, but that's not what this is about. The reason we fired her is because she was working a second job that went against Nintendo's corporate culture. Now, Allison Rapp has admitted that she did do some moonlighting work in a secondary gig using a totally different name. So she was using a different name, doing a different job. That's all the details we have. We don't know what the job was, what she was doing. You know, how was this in violation of Nintendo's corporate culture? None of that has been revealed as of the recording of this podcast. Now, she maintains that it was the controversy around the harassment that led to her being fired. In other words, she says Nintendo never would have fired her even with the second job issue unless they also felt that there was all this other brouhaha going on. So if the brouhaha wasn't happening, Nintendo would have just turned a blind eye and Allison Rapp could have continued to work for Nintendo and have this secondary job. Now, is that true? We can't say for sure one way or the other. Honestly, if Rapp was violating company policy, I don't hold Nintendo at fault for acting on that. If she's violating corporate policy, Nintendo has every right To act on that. Though personally, I think it makes it much more sense. It's much more appropriate to have a conversation with Allison Rapp. to, To maybe reprimand her or say, hey, this is in violation of our corporate policy. You have to make a choice. Either you work here or you do something else. But you cannot do this other job and work here. It's against our policy. But that's not what happened. They fired her. There wasn't this step of let's talk to her first, but it just went straight to, let's fire her. So, if Rapp's secondary gig was in violation of Nintendo's policy, and if Nintendo makes it a standard procedure to fire employees who violate this part of the policy, I don't think Nintendo's at fault, necessarily. Because they're just doing what they always do. So, if this is something that happens... To any employee that is found to be working a secondary gig, then that's, that's the way the cookie crumbles. That's the corporate policy. I don't necessarily agree with it, but if that's the corporate policy, you gotta abide by that. Or you suffer the consequences. But if Nintendo rarely enforces this rule, that's another matter because it brings up the question if you don't enforce this rule all the time why did you enforce it in the case of Allison Rapp now rapp maintains that nintendo was aware that she had this secondary gig and that the policy that they are citing is not typically enforced again i don't know the truth of that and i also want to make it clear that my personal opinions and rapp's point of view about the morality issue those Ideas aren't in alignment. I don't really agree with her on this. And maybe that's just because I'm old. But I disagree with her perspective. I, I understand where she's coming from. I disagree somewhat with that. But that's fine. Adults can disagree. And they can have conversations about this. But my main objection is that she was targeted, harassed, threatened, and bullied for no reason. Shouldn't have happened at all. And it's deplorable that it happened for no reason and Nintendo didn't do more to protect her and defend her and speak up for her. So even if the reason she was fired was purely because of this corporate policy, it still remains that the company did not take a firm stand to say it is wrong to treat anyone this way. It is Uh, A wrong message to send that women have a place in the video game industry. They should not be run off. They should not be treated like they aren't human beings. They shouldn't be persecuted. And that's the real issue I have with Nintendo and this particular uh, story. Personally, I, I hope that more of this story unfolds and that Nintendo takes the opportunity to really establish a much more firm, anti-discriminatory, anti-harassment stance on the issue. I feel like a lot of companies have been very careful about this because they don't want to run off their audience. But I also think those companies need to take a hard look at what that audience is demanding and how that audience is behaving and ask themselves, is it a responsible thing to not speak up about this? That's why I'm speaking up because I really think there are better ways to go about getting your point across to support your arguments than to try and destroy the person who feels differently about it than you do. That I I truly believe that. And if you don't believe that, don't listen to my show. You're not going to be happy. So just go listen to something else. It's okay. I won't miss you. For those of you who remain, I love you guys. I very much looking forward to having conversations with you. That being said, if you want to have a conversation with me, you need to write me. My email address is techstuff at HowStuffWorks.com. Now, I know I haven't responded to many of you for a long time. And here's the reason why. Because I found out about it today. Outlook, Microsoft Outlook, has very helpfully moved almost all the listener mail into a clutter folder. So in other words, it's like a spam filter. In other words, most of the listener mail has been going into this clutter folder So I didn't see that I was getting mail. I didn't see that listeners were writing in. So I'll be going through the backlog of listener mail and trying to answer as many of those as I possibly can. And I apologize for that. I did not realize it was happening until today. So do write me. Know that I will be looking at that clutter folder and I will be reading and answering emails. I look forward to hearing from you. Again, that email address is Techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can always drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle on both of those platforms is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.